0: Let's pray together. Uh, Father, <clears throat> uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true and good and perfect. And we pray that we might be those as we hear your word who submit to it. And in that submission that we know more about who you are. The depths of your mystery, the depths of your sovereignty. And that as we do that, that it might shape our understanding of who we are because of you. So Lord, we ask you to speak to us from your word. Would you take just a moment right where you're seated to ask the Lord to speak to you from his word today? Thanks for your faithfulness, Lord, to reveal yourself to us, to give your word to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning again. Uh, So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and hardens whomever he wills. Aren't you glad you came to church today? (laughs) Pretty much self-explanatory. Let's wash our hands. Let's go to brunch early. We got this. Uh, Today, in the next few weeks, we are jumping in the deep end of the pool uh, on the mystery of God. And an understanding of his purposes and his plans, and particularly his sovereignty. This idea that he is sovereign, 100% in control. And if, if you're new with us, we, tend, we walk through books of the Bible as a general rule. And so we've been walking through the book of Romans that we are in as we come to chapter 9 today. And we started all the way in August, and we walked through books of the Bible as a way of, of seeing the whole picture of God and seeing what God is wanting to say to us. And, uh, and it reminds me that on the first week, when we first opened the book of Romans, one of the first things we said about the book of Romans as a perspective is that the book of Romans is in incredibly God-centered, which you're like, of course it is, it's the Bible. But no, it is from God's perspective. And, and what we have seen over and over again in the book of Romans is that God's view God's vantage point, God's perspective on the truth of the gospel. Now, naturally, we have a tendency to see the world from our eyes. How could we not? This is our perspective. And so we do that in all things, and we do that with the gospel. That we see the gospel sometimes as this sort of linear, chronological thing. That the idea is that we see the gospel from here to there. And and there's truth in that, and there's scriptures that speak to that. But today, what I want us to see is Paul drilling down in Romans 9 on the perspective of the gospel from there to here. From God's perspective, from God's vantage point, from God's sovereignty, how do we understand the gospel? And that means, by definition, we're not going to fully understand it because it's God's ways. His ways are not our ways. His vantage point is not our vantage point. And so there is this tension that we have to wrestle with as we walk through this passage. And this tension that we sit in, that this is beyond us. Now, I want to invite you today, though, even as we walk through this, to go there with me. To see what the scriptures say and what they're saying from God's perspective. Not negating our perspective, but to see God's perspective. And so to do that, as we walk through Romans, uh, I want to tell you a little bit about where we've been so that we can understand why we're here. And because we come to a new section of Romans. And so Romans 1 through 3, where we began in the beginning, we started this in August. It's the bad news. And week after week after week, we walk through the bad news. And the question that is pressing in on us in that section is, how righteous is God? I like is he a little bit righteous or is he 100% fully righteous? And in light of his righteousness, how unrighteous are we? How unrighteous is humanity? And he goes over and over and over again saying, no one is righteous. Our morals, our free will, our thoughts are stained with sin. That means that we are equally under judgment because the sin of humanity, unrighteous humanity, you and me, cannot save ourselves. That's the bad news. And then in the middle of chapter three, it shifts to the good news. And the good news is, well, then and the question that we are pressed into is how then do we get right with God? We don't get right with God by our own works or by keeping the law or by doing more good than bad or or by being self-actualized or by our own will. The answer to that question is God has done something for us to make us right with God. That word, justification, that Jesus died on the cross for us, justifying us, which means we who are unrighteous are declared righteous. And so you got the bad news, we got the good news, and then we come to what we've looked at the last couple of weeks, Romans 6 through 8, which is sort of the question, what now? This day-to-day transformation that is happening because of the good news uh, of the gospel. We have the Holy Spirit transforming us and conforming us into the image of Christ. And because of the gospel, we have all these rich promises that we've looked at the last few weeks for today. Now, all of this is from a God-centered approach. And so we've walked through all that, and we come to Romans 9 through 11. And one commentator said, Many give up on Romans here. Uh, Leaving Romans is a book with eight chapters of gospel at the beginning and four chapters of application at the end and three chapters of puzzle in the middle. It's challenging. But the question that Romans 9 through 11 is going to press us into is how sovereign is God? What does it really mean that God is in control and in control of all things, as we said last week? Now, if we pause for a minute, for God to be God— He has to be sovereign. He has to be in control. And one shorthand definition of sovereignty is God's right to rule and that God always rules rightly. God's right to rule is prerogative and he always rules rightly and his prerogative to do whatever he pleases and all that he pleases, he does perfectly. So as we kind of understand this, we saw this last week that everything God does is good. Now, why does this whole subject come up for Paul? Last week, we looked at the fact that the love of God is so secure. Do you remember that list? Nothing, nothing, and I mean nothing, can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And what we said last week is that the love is not, this love of God is not based upon what we do or what we don't do unlike any other relationship. That love is based on the fact that God knew us before the foundations of the world. And then he goes on to say this little list. Remember this list? He chose us. He called us. He justified us, meaning declared us righteous. He is conforming us into the image of Christ and he will glorify us, meaning he will finish what he started. This process is all God's. And so the natural question that plagues us in this And that pains us in this conversation is, what about those who reject Jesus? That's difficult for us. In fact, Paul is actually answering this question. And in particular, the context is the Jewish people who have rejected Jesus. The church at Rome at this time is full of Roman Christians uh, and Gentile Christians. And so as they are hearing this, as the Jewish Christians are hearing this, they're like, what does this, all this mean about my Jewish brothers and sisters, my family members who have rejected Jesus? What does that mean? And so this is what he says. Let's walk with me. Romans 9, verse one. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. Somebody says, that I have great strength Sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Now, I don't want to miss this. This pains Paul. I don't want to miss his passion and his compassion for his people. For those who don't know Jesus. In case we we might keep reading this and think that in some ways this is sort of cold and heartless. It's not the case. He starts with his care and his compassion for those who don't know Jesus. Jesus. He says he has great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart. This is not easy, nor should it be. And specifically, he's talking about the Jews, of which he is one, the people of God, Israel, the chosen, the adopted people of God. He says they have the glory. Remember the presence of God walking all the way through the scriptures. They have the covenants, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the law, the Davidic covenant. They have all of this. They have been made promises by God and They're in the lineage of the Messiah, of Christ. And so what does that mean for the Jewish people who did not receive Jesus? Did God's promises fail? Were they not secure like we thought they were? That's the question Paul is answering here. And that's what he says in verse six, look. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. He wants to describe this and help us to understand that the word of God has not failed. The promises of God have not failed. He goes on. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all are, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But as the scripture says, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now, did God promises, did God's promises fail? No. Now, there's two uh, uh, truths that help us form an answer to this. And again, one of these is sort of from here to there, and the other ones is from there to here. And this first one is that his corporate promises were meant to point to personal faith. He's talking about corporate promises to the people of Israel, but the whole point of those corporate promises was meant to point to personal faith. And, And so many, in fact, most Jews, when Jesus came, did not believe. They did not have personal faith. They had every opportunity to see and believe in the Messiah. They had all they had the glory and the covenants and the law and the temple. They had all of this that was pointing to Jesus. And yet John tells us what happened. John 1. He came to his own. Jesus himself was a Jew. He came to his own, his own people, did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man but of God. And so the blessings of God came corporately to the people of God, but all of that was meant to point to personal faith. Now we know this and understand this as well in our own worlds. Some of us, or or maybe we know people who who grew up uh, in a Christian family that means there's a banner of blessing over that. There's a corporate blessing that comes with that because the, growing up in a Christian family, you, you hear the word of God, you understand who Jesus is, you, you see the people of God worshiping Jesus. There's this corporate benefit, but all of that corporate benefit is meant to lead to personal faith, to trusting in Jesus. But unfortunately, though God has given all of this to the nation of Israel, most of the people rejected him. They're missing out. Not because of the deficiency of God's promises, but because they did not personally believe. And so that's that first truth from here to there. There's corporate blessings, but it was always meant to lead to personal faith. But again, now God's going to peel back the curtain. Paul's going to show us the perspective from there to here. Now, he says that not all Israel is Israel. The reality is that not all the people with Jewish blood are children of God. That's what he's saying. Why? Because God chooses. The children of God are chosen. Now, look what he continues to go on to say, verse 8. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as his offspring. There's a difference between Israel and the bloodline, the natural bloodline, and the people of God as the spiritual bloodline. This, now, this idea of God choosing is not troubling to Jewish readers. Uh, they know this idea. God chose the covenant people of God to be blessed, to be a blessing. So this idea of God choosing is not something that's new to them. In fact, Paul is going to use two illustrations from their history about God choosing. And that's what he goes on to do. First, he's going to use the illustration of Ishmael and Isaac. Keep reading with me. Verse 9. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. Now that's just a shorthand reminder for all the the Israelites who would understand this story. But if you remember, God made a promise to Abraham and Sarah. Said, You through you there will be multiple descendants, more than the stars. And Abraham and Sarah were very old. And so this was something that I don't know how this could happen. And so they brought in Hagar, and Abraham and Hagar had a child together, Ishmael. So he is the first in the bloodline to Abraham. And so according to culture, he should receive the blessings of his father. But that's not how God chose this to happen. The promises of God skipped over who you would expect from sheer bloodline. And God chose Isaac, Sarah's miraculous son, not Ishmael, to be the son of the promise. Second illustration. Esau and Jacob. Now, Isaac, he grows up. Follow me with this. Isaac, he grows up. He marries Rebekah, and they have twins. And Rebekah, as she is having her twins, Esau and Jacob. Esau is born first, maybe a few minutes before Jacob. But God chose Jacob over Esau. Now, Paul's making a point here, and this is what he says as we continue on verse 10. And not only so, but also when Rebekah Before the twins were born, God chose this situation. How did the promise move to Isaac? How did the promise move to Jacob? God chose it. When? Before the boys had done anything at all. Before they were conceived, he says. God's elective choice was to move over the older into the younger. Now, we struggle with this language, and and I get it. Um, I, I think it's helpful for us to understand this word hate. A little bit, maybe in a different context, we think of the word hate as um, a strong aversion or detesting someone. But this word hate kind of has this idea of sort of out of favor or disregard, not chosen, mostly relative to a great love. So, for example, when Jesus says, uh, You will hate your father and mother, well, Jesus is clearly not telling us to hate our father and mother. The scriptures over and over again, and Jesus himself says to honor our father and mother. But what is he saying? In relation to how you follow Jesus, if your father and mother are going to get in the way of you following Jesus, relative to that, he says you will hate your father and mother. That's the idea here. And I know it's hard for us to get our head around this, but this is what Paul's saying. He chose Jacob as a child of the promise, and he did not choose Esau. God in His sovereignty chooses. This is what we call divine election. This, again, is the God perspective from there to here. But verse 11, he tells us very clearly why and the purpose. He says, In order that God's purpose or plan of election, this choosing, might continue or remain, not because of works, but on Him who calls. Now, this is a very important statement right in the middle of this passage. Just like we said last week, Paul is making the point that our salvation rests solely on the shoulders of what Jesus has done. If you're a believer in Jesus, God chose us before the foundations of the world, unrelated to what we do or will do or have done. Now, I know this is difficult and challenging for some of us, and there's different views within Christianity. There's different views within this church. And we're a, we have a big tent on this understanding. But I think the reason that we struggle is because we um, are, are struggling with, a re- with perspective. With what perspective are we looking at this in? So our perspective, again, in our finite minds is, is from here to there. And there's so many passages that speak to that. And, and we see those and we understand that. We go, this is how this works. But I believe what Paul's trying to help us see is God's perspective from there to here. Not only did he initiate, not only did he accomplish, not only did he bring fruition our salvation, but before the foundation of the world, Ephesians reiterates, God chose. Now, choosing means by definition that he did not choose others. He's clearly saying that here. Now, some take this to be more corporate or communal choosing because sometimes Jacob is synonymous with uh, Israel and Esau is synonymous with the Edomites. Uh, But I think Paul's point here is he's trying to help their readers see that God did not fail in his promises even when most of the Jews rejected Jesus. His corporate promises to Israel were meant to point to personal faith. It is True and always true that God so loved the world that he gave his own son that whoever, whosoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. The human perspective, from our perspective, and most of the Jewish people didn't believe despite the corporate promises. But Paul, as he peels back the curtain, the mysteries of the sovereignty of God, he tells us that children of God are chosen by God. So anybody have any questions? (laughs) Um we are not going to answer all the questions that we have that are spinning around our head. And we're like, uh, some of you are like, I'm sorry. I just, I can't even think about this right now. I've got stuff to do. Um, but, uh, Paul anticipates a question that we might struggle with. Um, look at verse 14. So what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? And he answers it by no means. May it never be? The question, it's the same question we say. It's like, how is this fair? How is this right? Now, when we watched through Romans 1 through 3, we kept saying that Paul is really emphasizing how righteous God is and how unrighteous humanity is. Now, we read this months ago, but, but the original readers, remember, they would have heard this in one sitting. So they heard Romans 1 through 3 just a few minutes ago. And as they're hearing this, what would call to mind pretty quickly is this, is Paul's vast explanation in the intensity of the immense failure of our own will, of our own choosing, of our own mind, of our own effort to earn. We would not have chosen God. He says, no one is righteous. No one seeks God, Paul says. So what would be fair? It would be for all to perish What would be fair is for every single person to die under the weight of our own sin. All, remember the scripture says, have fallen short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. That would be fair. Now we know this and we, we all nodded our heads in Romans one through three, but I think it's especially important that we understand that in this context, Now, one of my favorite things, uh, that each week we read the prayer requests that you guys turn in and, and man, they're amazing. We love coming alongside and praying with you. Um, and I want to read one. I I promise I will never read yours. Um, this is from a child and I asked, uh, permission from these parents, but I want to read one of these prayers that came in last week from one of our children says, dear Lord, thank you for your grace. I do not need to be forgiven, but you forgive me. I'm not sure what the drawing is, maybe it's a mountain. I don't know. Um, But she keeps going, I sinned. I should die, but you saved me. I have disobeyed you, but you showed me mercy. Thank you, Lord. Amen. What does Isaiah say? A child will lead you, right? I think the drawing is a mountain of sin that's been erased because of the gospel. There's (laughs) a prophetic art. It's beautiful this is what we deserve, death. That's what's fair. But God had to do something so radical to save unrighteous humanity. He had to give his son, his perfectly righteous son, Jesus, fully God, fully man. And he had to die in our place so that we could be declared righteous, not by what we did, but by what Jesus did. So is this fair? Well, well No. We deserve death and eternal separation from God. But God, in his divine sovereignty, stretching us to think, how sovereign is God? And in his righteousness, accomplish something that only he could have come up with. And God, in his divine sovereignty, he chooses to show mercy on whom he shows mercy. That's what he says to this question. Verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Pressing us into this question that's hard for our minds and our hearts, but maybe even more so our emotions to, to deal with, how sovereign is God? His sovereign prerogative, he rules rightly and everything he does is right. That's the understanding of sovereignty. He goes on to tell us the purpose behind this again, verse 16, so then it depends not on human will, or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Notice the purpose of this election. It's really clear, but we need to see it. Verse 16 again. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy so that it depends not on sin, stained human free will or exertion or work, but on God. Now in the wading through all of this and our mental challenges and our emotional challenges with this text, Paul reminds us why he's telling us this. We saw this last week that if the gospel depended upon our stained human will or our sense-laced motives, we would be nowhere. The promise of God would not be secure but because all of it depends upon God and his sovereignty, it is utterly secure. It's not based upon us. Again, I know this isn't easy for us. It, for many of us, trying to, this is why it's so mysterious and challenging. God's ways are not our ways. We can't see the world from his vantage point. But I want, us to, ch- I want to challenge us to sit in the tension of the mystery of God. To not downplay or sugarcoat uh, what the word of God says but also just to not get ourselves all caught up in these philosophical loop de loops that we do where we miss the whole point. Because I think there's a few things we can take from this, a few applications so, so that we don't miss the point. From our perspective, from here to there, I, I wanna implore you, believe in what you have received. If you've been around the gospel, you you've know people who know Jesus, you have a family that knows Jesus, don't just keep putting it off. Believe in the truth of the gospel. Receive this gift that God has given us. Because the next chapter tells us, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God rose him from the dead, you will be saved. There'll be no one in the kingdom of God that got there apart from personally trusting in Jesus Christ. Donald Barnhouse, a pastor, writer from a generation ago, Uh, he gave this illustration. He says, I want to imagine that every one of us is coming up to a door and written on that door is an invitation. And the invitation is from Jesus on that door. It says, 'I I have lived for you. I have died in your place and I rose from the dead and I'm returning and I've done this for you and I long for you to receive it and believe it. And you read that on the door and you say, this is so compelling that God would die for me this is incredible. I want to do this. I want to trust in you and I want to follow you and as soon as you walk through that door on the, uh, with the invitation on the back side of the door it says, I chose you before the foundations of the world. You say, wait, what? I thought I just chose to walk through this door. Yes, but I chose you before the foundation of the world. There's, there's something about this that I think we need to sit in and the tension of the invitation on the front of the door And the declaration on the back of the door that from God's perspective, He chose you and me. Now, secondly, we can't read this and not be concerned about those who have not believed. One of the things that tends to happen with this doctrine, and this it's stereotypical about this, is people can become apathetic about people who don't know the Lord, because like, well, it's determined. You know, and it sort of takes this sort of cold and heartless view towards this idea of choosing. Paul knew the destiny of Israel was in God's hands. And what does he say? I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Just because someone we know and love does not believe in Jesus now, it does not mean that they won't ever. Again, the next chapter says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how will they call if they've not believed? How will they believe if they've not heard? How will they hear if they've not been told the story? How will they tell this? How will they hear the story from, unless you are sent, unless we go? This chapter should not lead to ambivalence about people who don't know Jesus, but actual hunger to show care and compassion and love and to share the gospel of Jesus. But mostly today, I want us to stand in awe, to marvel in humility at our God and his merciful salvation. Twice, we've already seen it. Paul's made it abundantly clear. This depends upon God. He does not choose people like kids picking teams for kickball on the playground. And as hard as it is for us to say, wow, I, God didn't choose Esau? I, I think an appropriate response also would be, why on earth did he choose Jacob? Have you read the story of Jacob? He's a deceiver and a scoundrel. Which leads us to the question, how on earth did God ever choose anyone? And in particular, How on earth would God have chosen you or me? And not to mention that he shows that mercy before they, before we did anything, before we took a breath, before we could do good or bad. When we ponder this election, this difficult subject, I think an appropriate response is to stand in awe and marvel In humility, in gratitude, in worship of our God. Once again, a prayer request from last week, a different kid. Thank you, Lord, for these prayer requests. Mm -hmm. Dear Lord, I would love to say thank you, but that's not enough. You have done everything for me. And even if I say thank you seven million times, I think I did that right. (laughs) Doesn't even come close. It won't build up to everything you did. Thank you for making the universe, the world, the animals, and basically everything. This line right here You are the best. She goes on to model how we care and have compassion for those who need the care and compassion of the Lord that we just saw. But this is the appropriate response to this understanding. Utter humility, gratitude, and worship because God, who created the animals and the universe and basically everything, in his sovereignty, has secured salvation based on his terms and based on his faithfulness. Even if we say thank you seven million times, it doesn't even come close. Let's marvel at our salvation. Let's say, like this child, you are the best. Let's pray. Father, as we wrestle with this, we admit our wrestling. And, and as we look at this passage, I, I just want us Lord, to see that this, for some reason, we sometimes tend to think of this as some like cold and heartless calculated choice. But that the truth is that you as God, knowing that we could not save ourselves, chose to send your son to die for us. in our place, the death we deserved, and because of that, we now receive the grace and the mercy and the life that comes from you. And so, Lord, my prayer for us today is that as we ponder these things, as we think about it, that we remember that his sovereignty, your sovereignty, as difficult as it is for us to get our heads around, actually shows us that this salvation is secure. It's 100% based upon you. So may we rest in that. May we trust in that. May we be compelled to follow you, to trust you, care and compassion for those who don't know you, and just every day marvel at your great love and mercy for us.